Psalm chapter 20. We are continuing our series, our Summer in the Psalms series. And we look at Psalm 20, this great declaration of trust in this prayer of the King. And as we look at Psalm 20, I would say one of the greatest difficulties in the Christian life if not the greatest difficulty in the Christian life, is that of trust. In fact, you may have heard it said, a very true statement, I believe, the root of every sin is unbelief. We find that all the way back to the Garden of Eden. That if you get back down to the root of every sin in our life, it is that of unbelief. Well, one indicator of this heart of unbelief in our lives is a lack of prayer. A life that is characterized by fear or independence or self-will or worry is generally a life that is lacking in meaningful prayer. And I would say not simply prayer, But as we will see in Psalm 20, the experiential confidence in the nature and character of the God that we are praying to. Many times we are we are our our lives are lacking in our prayer life because our trust is lacking in who the one we are praying to really is. So in this psalm, we're going to see a heart posture of prayer trust, and commitment for God to accomplish His purposes, specifically in the life of Israel's king. Verse 6 of Psalm 20 says, Now I know the Lord saves His anointed. God's purposes being accomplished in the life of Israel's king and as a byproduct in the life of Israel. Now, as we come to this psalm, as we come to many psalms, and we put this psalm in its original context, and then we also ask, now, um, uh, having the full Scriptures, what do I take from this psalm? We see that David is the, the author of this song to the choir master. And David is penning the words to this psalm, and it is a request of David himself. It is also to be sung by the temple choir, and it is a prayer for the king. In fact, this song more than likely would oftentimes be sung before a battle, asking God's blessing to prosper the king, but it speaks so much greater than simply David or any one individual king in Israel's history. When we come to the Psalms and we read the words of David, and we read the words of prayers for Israel's king, we have to remember, we have to put in context where we are at in Scripture as David pens this. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 to 15, God makes a covenant with David. Uh, called the Davidic Covenant. And maybe you've, you've heard of that. And in that covenant, God says this to David. 
When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now we see part of this fulfilled in the life of Solomon who builds a temple. Uh, it was not David that built the temple, it was Solomon. But yet, even with Solomon, the promises of this covenant were not fulfilled. David realizes that he has been given, through his line, an eternal kingdom and an eternal king, one of his descendants, to rule and reign forever. So as David writes Psalm 20, he's composing a, pl- a prayer and a declaration of trust, not only for himself and the nation of Israel, but ultimately for his promised descendant who will rule and reign for all eternity. And you may say, Pastor Adam, you know, uh, how do we know that that's the case? Well, the Psalms are not randomly put in in the book of Psalms. Uh, I I want you to just turn back to Psalm chapter 18, just two two Psalms before we get to chapter 20. David writes this, Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed. And we read about the anointed in chapter 20. And then note what it says, To David... And his offspring, what? Forever. As David writes this, he is looking beyond himself to someone greater. So you may ask, well, Pastor Adam, so what about us? How does this psalm apply to us? Well, just as we're going to read in Psalm 20, Just as the nation of Israel could stand confident in God's favor because of his favor to the king, David, so we can stand confident today in God's favor because of his favor to the king. You see, we have an objective source of hope this morning. Because of God's faithfulness to Jesus, His eternal Son, we know without a doubt that He will be faithful to us as well. So what we are saying this morning, what we are called to believe by God, is that our hope, it is an objective hope, not a subjective hope. You may say, Pastor Adam, what do you mean by that? Our hope is objective. Our hope is placed in the person of Jesus Christ. That because He was the perfect Son of God, that David never was, our hope, it remains undiminished no matter what, because we have hope in a person, not in a subjective or fluctuating type feeling or emotion. Our hope is not in the subjectiveness of how are we doing today. 
Our hope isn't in the subjectiveness of of what are life circumstances bringing me today. Our hope cannot be taken away because Jesus remains the sure and steadfast King. So this morning, the question we're going to ask ourselves is, where are you going to place your trust? The key truth that Psalm 20 presents to us that I want to bring out to you is this reality. There is only one who is deserving of your trust. There's only one. It's not yourself. It's not your things. It's not your bank accounts. There's only one who's deserving of your trust. So today I want to show you that God alone is worthy of your trust and commitment by looking at the three sections of Psalm 20. We're going to look at this prayer for deliverance in verses 1 through 5. We're going to spend the majority of our time there this morning. And then we are going to look at not only this prayer for deliverance, but coming from this prayer for uh, for deliverance is this pledge of commitment in chapter in verses 6 to 8 and and the popular verse some trust in chariots some in horses we will trust in the name of the Lord our God we're going to look at that and then we're going to close this morning in verse 9 looking at the promise of certainty that God gives us so let's let's begin our time in prayer Lord I pray this morning that you would work mightily in our hearts Lord, awaken us from our sleep. Lord, the the clouds of fog that overcome our spiritual perception, our hearts, our minds. Lord, for the past couple weeks, we've dealt with all sorts of smoke and, and fog that's come from the fires in Canada. And Lord, so many times I think if we had a look into our spiritual hearts, we would see all of the fog from the cares and concerns and worries of this world, our misplaced priorities, that God, it drowns out the voice of Your Spirit. So Lord, I pray that You would clear all of that. And Lord, that You would work and that we would have ears ready to hear what You have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. We see in verses 1 to 5 this prayer for deliverance. I want to read verses 1 to 5 and follow along, and then we'll talk about these things. It says, May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May He remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. Selah. May He grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Here we see David's prayer, and this prayer would be echoed by God's people, and there are ten 
petitions in this prayer, in verses 1 to 5. This is, no doubt, a prayer for deliverance for Israel's king. Because as the king is delivered and is prospered, so are the people, right? I want to look at each of these verses and look at the realities that come from this prayer for deliverance. And then how it ultimately points us to God's ultimate deliverance through Christ. Verse 1 shows us that in our prayer for deliverance, in David's prayer for deliverance, shows us in verse 1 that it is the Lord who will hear. The Lord is not a God that is hard of hearing. He doesn't need a hearing aid. I, uh, I, I was born and, and, and had very little hearing in my right ear. So, so all of my life, I, I'm kind of having to turn and, and, and listen. Uh, that's another prayer request because I found last year that it's very hard, to, especially in crowded rooms, to hear people with heavy accents when they're on my bad side. That, that's double duty hardship. <laughs> um, but the Lord's not like that where he has to strain to hear his people. Rachel learned um, automatically, she always walks on, on the left side of me to hear after 18 years of marriage. And she says that whenever she's like with people, she automatically gravitates to their left side. So notice that whenever, if Rachel's walking with you, she'll be on your left side. Um, but the Lord hears. This is a prayer in troubled times. Verse 1 says, may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. We all like nice days, little trouble. I mean, I would say, we generally would say, it is much easier to pray for someone else in their time of trouble than to be in the time of trouble and needing other people to pray for us. But it says here, may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. This word trouble has the idea of something that is narrowing, that is confining, that is restricting. And isn't that the sense we get when we go through troubles? Now, this very request, may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble, is not only a prayer in troubled times, but it is a prayer for God to answer. That implies that God will hear. Next week, Roger's going to uh, be preaching on Psalm 46. And Psalm 46.1 says this, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. I think we have that verse on the overhead, correct? The same, the same thing, in trouble. God is a very present help in trouble. Again, we're going to see a lot of analogies to Psalm 18 and Psalm 20. If you look at Psalm 18 and look at verse 6, what does David say? In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. That word distress is the word trouble. 
From his temple he heard my voice and my cry to him reached his ears. There is trouble, and that trouble does not take God off guard. He is always listening. As David is writing, and he is writing ultimately of the future descendant of his that will rule and reign forever, we know that Jesus himself in the example of Christ was not exempt from trouble, was he? The Quite the opposite. Isaiah 53 says he was acquainted with griefs. And when we read Psalm 22, just two chapters later, which we know it foretells of Jesus. We see Jesus' trouble in verses 1 and 2, don't we? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Listen, there is no trouble that you or I experience that is greater than the troubled waters that Jesus went through. And not only talking about the end of His earthly life before His death, but all throughout it. This is a prayer for God to answer, but verse 1 shows this is a prayer for God to protect. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. It's interesting how the, the psalm puts it here, the name of the God of Jacob. Why would, why would David write the name of the God of Jacob? Why would he put that? Why wouldn't he just put, may the God of Jacob protect you? And we have to understand something in, in the Scriptures that the name of someone meant something. Uh, just thinking through this this week, one of, the, one of the, the closest parallels, and it's not even a good example today, like, you know, we, I named our children Timothy and Isaac and Julia and Samuel. Well, it, 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 there's nothing, those names have meanings, but, but it, it, those names do not necessarily describe my children. But not so here, not so uh, during Bible times. Again, the, one of the closest parallels I could think of is, is growing up, you know, when the Chicago Bulls would, would play, and it would always be Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls versus, whatever, Patrick Ewing and the New York Knicks. Uh, last week, Tim said that he hated the Bulls and loved the Knicks. I loved the Bulls and hated the Knicks with a passion. <laughs> um, just wanted to put that out there. <laughs> But why was it Michael Jordan in the Chicago Bulls or Patrick Ewing in the New York Knicks or you think about teams today? It was because that star player somewhat was to characterize that team, right? Now, there's, there's a problem with that because you could have a great star player and if the rest of the team is weak, the team's still going to be weak, right? Not so in our case here. The name of the God of Jacob protect you. The significance is the name describes the character and the attributes of the person. The whole person, not just a part. 
So for instance, do you remember, and I've been having devotions through the book of Exodus um, and just finished that up this past week. But do you remember Moses is away on Mount Sinai for 40 days and what happens? I mean, God had literally just given His people the law. And then Moses was going to meet with with God on, on on the mountain. And the people are like, yes, everything you say, God, we're going to do it. And then Moses is gone 40 days and they say, we don't know what became of Moses, so, so make us a God that represents the one who delivered us from Exodus and so we can worship that God. And God is, is full of wrath against the people. Moses intercedes for the people. And in Exodus 33, verses 18 and 19, be on the overhead on the screen for you it says this Moses said please show me your glory and God says this I will make all my goodness pass before you and then here's the part and will proclaim before you my name the Lord and then he goes on to describe who he is what this name represents I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. You see, the name of God was to stand for all that God is. Same thing a chapter later when when God says, the Lord, the Lord, He proclaims His name, and then He goes on to describe Himself. A God merciful, gracious, slow to anger. He says to a thousand generations, but not overlooking the sin and, um, and bringing that on to the third and fourth generation. He is proclaiming his name, and by doing so, he's describing who he is. One, one final example, you're all familiar with this, especially at Christmas time. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, talking about this coming Messiah. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now it's not that everyone's walking around calling this coming Messiah, these, these descriptions. It is that this is who He will be. These are His attributes. These are, this is His character. So when we jump back to chapter 20 here, may the name of the God of Jacob protect you. It is may all who God is, all that He has promised, all of His character, may He be there for you to protect you. How does this apply to our lives? Well, I like what one individual said. And I find this true in my life many, so many times, and I think you do too. This is what a fellow by the name of Alan Ross said. If people are ignorant of God's revealed attributes and perfections, that is, if they have never realized His power in their lives in a time of distress... The problem may be presented to the Lord in prayer, but there will be very little confidence in prayer. Get this, the necessity, the necessary procedure to develop greater confidence in praying 
is to discover what God has done and is capable of doing so that in the time of trial, the name of the Lord will fill our thoughts and strengthen our faith. In other words, if you are not living in communion with your Lord, if you are not seeking to place Him above all else, walking by faith, not by sight, making Him the Lord of your life, allowing Him to prove Himself true in your life. And then when the troubled waters of verse 1 come, and you call out to God in prayer and say, it just doesn't seem like God's doing anything. I just don't feel like God's here. It's because you have not learned who God is through the everydays of life. See, many times we're foxhole Christians, aren't we? We call out to God in the middle of the foxhole when God calls us to a living, daily relationship with Him. God proves Himself true to those who look to Him. And who are those who look to Him? Those who God allows to come to the end of themselves to where they have nowhere else to turn. That's grace. That's not meanness. That's kindness and love. I know in, in my own life, some of the, the closest times of communion I've had with the Lord is during those times where He shows me I am not enough. Are we seeking Him? Are we allowing Him and saying, God, I want to have my own personal faith, not the faith of my parents, not the faith of my pastors, not the faith of, 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 of uh, the, the, the people that I look up to spiritually. I want to have my own faith. I want You to show me who You are. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. Where do we see this example in Christ? Because ultimately David is praying for this eternal descendant, this coming king. In Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 7, it says this, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears, to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Jesus didn't just experience the dregs of hell and death for us. By the mighty power and the acceptance of this sacrifice, it was God's power that raised him from the dead. Jesus himself was heard in his most troublesome time. Will God not hear us, the ones who Jesus has won to himself? In our prayer for deliverance, we can have confidence. Verse 1 shows us that the Lord will hear. But also in verse 2, in our prayers for deliverance, we can have confidence that it is the Lord who will uphold us. 
Verse 2 says, May He send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. And we know in the Old Testament, where was it? God's, God's localized presence that He manifested His presence. It was in the temple on Mount Zion. And the prayer here is for the Lord to send deliverance and help from His mighty temple. The Lord will indeed uphold us. In verse 3, we see that in our prayers for deliverance, we can have confidence because it is the Lord who will remember us. Verse 3 says, May He remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. Selah. This verse shows us that the Lord knows those who have a heart toward Him. Pastor Dennis will be preaching on Psalm 51 later this summer. And we know from Psalm 51, David writes, you will not delight in sacrifices or else I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. What David is saying is the same thing that, that God has said elsewhere where there's disobedience and yet the offering of sacrifices, that that's not, the outward act is not what God is interested in. It's the heart. And this prayer here is that those who have a heart towards Him, that Israel's king would have a heart towards God, that in the day of trouble, the heart would be reflected in the sacrifice and that it would be pleasing and acceptable to God. And the prayer is that God would remember. Now, now, just like God's not really hard of hearing, God also isn't forgetful. David's not saying, God, I know you forget things, so would you please remember this one? How many of you as parents have said something to your kids and then totally forgot and they bring it up to you later? Anybody like that? Yeah, I think all of us, right? We can be forgetful parents. How many of you uh, have a spouse or maybe a parent that tells you to do something and you forget? <laughs> I should see everybody's hand, right? God's not like that. This is not a prayer that somehow God would remember something He forgot. What we see here is a prayer for the Lord to act in accordance again with His character and the promises that He has already made. It's remembering in the sense of honoring and carrying out what He already said He would do. Verse 3, we see the ultimate fulfillment of this prayer request once again in the person of Christ. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 to 7, it says this, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for Me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. You see, what 
Jesus comes to do is, yes, He does offer the ultimate sacrifice that is, verse 3, pleasing and finds favor with God. It's because Jesus lived the perfect life in complete unity and submission to His Father that that offering was acceptable. David was called a man after God's own heart, right? Yet David fell far short of the ideal king. And folks, in our Christian lives, don't we desire the things of God? And Lord, I want to live for you. God, I want to serve you. I want to place my hope in you. But man, every day we face that struggle with the flesh. Those roots of bitterness spring up and we, 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 we try to pluck those and, and we battle and, and, and lusts or, or um, uh, different things that may come in our lives. Fears, circumstances, relationships, all of those things. And what those things are meant to point us to is the one who offered himself as the perfect sacrifice. And therefore, we are accepted by God because of Jesus, not because of ourselves. Do you see how David's ultimate prayer for deliverance was answered in Christ? Not only for Israel of old, but for us as well. I want to give you two more quick reasons why we can have confidence in this prayer for deliverance. It's because, number four, verse four, the Lord will satisfy. May He grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. Now, in the context of this psalm, we're not talking about David asking for every single sensual earthly desire he may have to be fulfilled. No, we've already seen David's heart in Psalm 18, verse 50, asking for God to bring great salvation. You see, God satisfies the desires of those who seek Him. This word plans, fulfill all your plans, it's the exact same word in Psalm 1.1 that talks about counsel. There it is counsel of the ungodly that is contrasted with the establishment of the righteous. You see, we're not to have the plans, the desires, the counsel of the ungodly that characterizes our lives, but we are to desire the fruit and the sustaining nourishment, Psalm 1 tells us, of the Word of God and who He is. He satisfies our desires when our heart's desires are pointed to Him. We also see what these desires are. If you look over again, these psalms go together for a reason. Psalm chapter 21, the very next psalm, you look at verse 2. 
And once again, we see how these verses are ultimately fulfilled in Christ. Verse 2 is a song of celebration of the answering of Psalm 20. And it says, You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. Selah. What are those desires? For you meet him with rich blessings. You have set a crown of fine gold upon his head. He asks life of you. You gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. See, David has to be talking about someone greater than himself. Verse 5, His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on Him. For you, will, for you will make Him most blessed forever. You make Him glad with the joys of your presence. For the King trusts in the Lord. And through the steadfast love of the Most High, He shall not be moved. These are the desires that are on David's heart. These are the desires that we have our hope fixed in Christ who answers this prayer. And then in verse 5, we see the Lord will indeed save. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. You see, God's people are to rejoice in His salvation. May we shout for joy over your salvation. What's the description of joy? What's the, what kind of joy? What are, you, what are we doing with the joy? May we what? Shout for joy. That's all one word in Hebrew. It is talking about exultant praise and sometimes it 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 concerns me when we as God's people seem bored with praising God that man when we have experienced the salvation of our God it should spring within us not just a little bit of praise but exuberant praise of joy for his salvation. Could it be that life has clouded that exuberant joy? Could it be that routine has clouded that exuberant joy? That going through the motions and going through the everyday and, you know, I go to work, I provide for my family and I'm seeking to be settled in retirement. That maybe even those things can become our salvation. Hearts that rejoice in His salvation. Why? Because the text shows us that God fights for His people. And in the name of our God, set up our banners. David isn't praying, let's set up a banner that our armies are going to march under. And it says, Israel, the army of David, the nation of David. No, David says, God, would we go forward under your banners so that everyone knows that we are the Lord's? Is that your life's prayer? 
the God who has saved me so wonderfully, I want to walk under the banner of his salvation. Because if we're going to walk under the banner of his salvation, that means that we're going to be doing a lot more praying. We're going to be doing a lot more waiting on him and not jumping to our own solutions. We're going to be doing a lot more looking to him. A lot more need for the prayers of others in our lives. And a lot less, I got it all figured out, I can do it on my own. See, God fights for His people. God directs His people. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. See, it's one thing in verse 4 to have certain desires. It's another thing in verse 5 for the Lord to fulfill those petitions. The Lord will save. How do we see the example of Christ? This word salvation is the very word Yeshua. Yahweh saves. The name in the Old Testament, Yeshua, is the name Joshua. And in, in the Greek, it's the name Jesus himself. Who brings about this salvation? God brings it about through Jesus in our lives. We live under the banner of Jesus. This, folks, is our prayer for deliverance. Now, this looks a lot deeper and wider than simply, God, would you help me that this current difficulty I'm facing would immediately be resolved, right? This is the kind of deliverance that we need. Deliverance, yes, from situations and circumstances, but I would say the greater thing is deliverance from ourselves, from our flesh, from our tendencies to crave the easy and the temporal. And only God can do that work. Only God can deliver us from ourselves. Because I don't know about you, but I don't even know all of the areas where I need deliverance from self. Thank goodness that the Holy Spirit intercedes with, uh, for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. Or He prays for us. And Thank goodness Jesus is at the right hand of God interceding for us, interpreting our small prayers into the big prayers and the petitions that God desires to fulfill in our hearts. But that requires trust. As Jesus said, not my will, but yours be done. There's no greater victory that anyone will ever accomplish than the victory at the cross. And Jesus himself said, Lord, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And we're called to have that same heart. Well, as we close today, I want us to quickly just read through the rest of this psalm and we see... A second truth here of not only a pledge of a prayer of deliverance, but we see that God, David was confident God would answer this prayer, and we see here a pledge of commitment. 
Verse 6, the pledge is that there is the reality that David knows that our God will indeed save. It says, now I know the Lord saves his anointed and will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. This is ultimate deliverance, folks. In verse 2, the prayer request is that God would help from the sanctuary, give support from Zion. But verse 6 shows the Lord does something even greater than that. He saves from His holy heaven. His eternal abode. Not His temporary uh, uh, fixed presence in the temple that was built. And that saving comes from His holy heaven as Jesus descends from earth in the form of a small fetus in the womb of a young girl. He lived the perfect life we could never live. He died the sacrifice that would be eternally acceptable. As we saw in Psalm 2 and Psalm 110, He's at the right hand of God. And victory has been won for His people. We see in verse 7 the commitment that we are to trust. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Now would you put yourself in David's day? This psalm by the, by the temple choir uh, and by the people of Israel would, would more than likely have been sung before battle, before some sort of conflict. And what was the sign of military strength? during this time it wasn't machine guns and tanks and jets it was chariots and horses in fact god in deuteronomy 17 verse 16 he commanded the kings of israel not to acquire many horses and chariots because he knew their trust would go to those things now they didn't listen you see if we are to truly trust God, it is going to come down to a point where we cease to trust in human resources. Now, don't get me wrong. God often uses human resources to answer our prayers. It's not that we, you know, let's not go to the doctor because God will just take care of it. But it's that we are no longer solely looking to these human resources as answers. We are looking ultimately to God, and if He answers through human resources, that's great. But I think we leave the God part out of it, right? This is a trust in God Himself. Again, who do we trust? We trust in the name of the Lord our God. In other words, we trust in the character. We trust in the attributes. We trust in who our God is. He will not leave us hanging. I like what, again, uh, Alan Ross says. He says, What the war machines were to the nations, the name of Yahweh was to Israel hey, we have something greater than all of these human resources. We have our God. He will be our defender, 
our provider, and our hope. Then in verse 8, we see as God answers the prayer uh, that God's people will be victorious, they collapse and fall. No matter how great the chariots, no matter how many the chariots and how many the horses, they collapse and fall, but we we rise and stand upright. It may not seem like it in this world. It may seem, as later Psalms say, why do the wicked seem to prosper and the righteous suffer? But folks, let's not be so so short-sighted to think that the end of the story has been written. And this brings us to verse 9, the third reality, a prayer of deliverance that brings a pledge of our commitment, that brings a promise of certainty. In verse 9, we have a simple, in two sentences, we have a recap of the whole psalm. O Lord, save the King. That summarizes the petition of verses 1 to 5. And boy, didn't... God do that. Jesus is alive at the right hand of God and He is coming again. May He answer us when we call. And don't we see that in verses 6 to 8? God's people need not fear no matter how great and many the horses and chariots are, God hears. God is there. And He will provide. So I bring to you again, as we close, the question, who is worthy of your trust? There's only one who is deserving of your trust. Are you going to give Him that trust? Are you going to give Him your life? Are you going to give Him that situation? 